Good morning, Cross Point. You glad you're here today? Wasn't that beautiful to hear holy, holy, holy as we're partaking of the emblems, the Lord's Supper, the bread which represents his body, the fruit of the vine which represents his precious, precious blood and how holy it is. And here's the good news. God makes us, because of his work on the cross, just as pure and as holy as he is himself. It's hard to kind of look at yourself that way. It's almost too good to be true, but it's true. That's the only basis he can fellowship us on. He keeps us holy. Amen. Today, we're in week number nine of the story. You might want to open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. Just a little book, just four chapters, but powerful, powerful stuff in this book. The faith of a foreign woman. We're looking at the story of Ruth. We have been looking at the major narratives of the Bible. We've kind of been going through the Bible looking at really the big picture of Israel. And, and it's almost as if God takes a little time out and we come to this little tiny book called Ruth and it's like, what's this book doing in here? Just four little chapters. And it doesn't apparently have anything to do with the big Israel narrative, but it's like God is saying, time out. Oh, yes, it does. Before you Israelites focus totally and completely upon yourself, I want you to understand the upper story picture. The big picture is salvation is for all, not just Israel. Amen? You say, I don't read about Gentiles in the Old Testament, Gentile salvation. Oh, yes, you do if you read the book of Ruth. It's in there, folks. Chapter 1, verse 1, let's get to it. We're going to have a lot on the screen here. If you haven't found it yet, I want to get started. Verse 1, in, in the days when the judges ruled. So what do we already know about the book of Ruth? We, we haven't got to the kings yet. Israel is still being ruled by judges. Who is Israel's king? God. And that's the way God intends it. We're going to see next week Israel gets way off course and they want an earthly king. But at least at this time in the life of Israel, they have a judge. This, the judge, they say, is at the time of Ruth, it was probably Jair. Jair's the judge. And it says there was a famine in the land. Now what do we know when Israel goes through a hard time? What's happening in Israel? Sin. Remember we talked about that 40-year cycle last week? And whenever Israel would sin, uh, God would bring calamity in their life. And then they would repent, and then God would raise up a judge, and then they would be restored, and they would have peace for maybe a 40-year period of time, and then they'd fall back into that sin cycle. Well, evidently, there's somewhere along the line in this sin cycle, and God has sent a famine to Israel. And a man from Bethlehem in Judea, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in a country, the country of Moab. Bad idea. The man's name was Elimelech. He's got a great name. It, 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 Eli comes from Elohim, it means God. Melech means king. And so his name means God is king. But somewhere along the line, Elimelech got off the right path. He got off course. 
Now, just a cursory reading of the book, you might not get that. But there are some clues early on in the book that would give that indication. Clue number one, he names his sons Malon and Kelon. You say, well, what's the big deal with that? Those are Canaanite names. What is a Hebrew, what is an Israelite doing naming his sons after the Canaanites who were the enemies of God's people? That's a clue. That's not good. Secondly, they decide they're going to, he's going to, there's a famine in our land, so let's move our family to where? Moab. Look at this map. Let me show you where they're living. See that little green spot there called Jerusalem? They move across the Red Sea into this country called Moab. The Moabites came against the Israelites and made war with them no less than 18 times. What is a good Hebrew doing moving to a foreign land like Moab? And do you know how Moab got started? Sort of a cursed nation to begin with. They have a plurality of gods. They had one in particular god in Moab called Chemesh. And Chemesh required human sacrifice. You would offer your children, they would take a baby and put it on a scolding, blazing hot altar, and it would burn to death to this God. Ungodly place. Who would move their family to live in a place like this? They got its start in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 37. Do you remember Abraham's nephew's name? His name was Lot. And on their way to the promised land, Lot gets off course. And he moves his family to a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. Not a good place to raise two young daughters. And in Sodom and Gomorrah got so wicked and so ungodly that God says, I'm going I'm to destroy these cities. And, he, and he's going to rain down fire and brimstone. And God sends an angel of the Lord to physically remove Lot and his family. He says, get out of here. You don't have time to grab anything. Just go. And he says, and don't look back. But where was Lot's wife? Her heart was back in Sodom and Gomorrah. She loved that way of life. And she looked back and she turned into a pillar of salt. Well, now you've got Lot and his two daughters. These two daughters says, well, who's going to carry on the seed line? Who's going to keep our family alive? We've got to have a family name. And these two daughters that grew up in that environment decide, let's get dad drunk and we'll have relations with him. And that's what they do. And the verse says, the older daughter had a son and she named him Moab. He is the father of who? The Moabites. And so just right out of the gate, we got an incestuous, cursed relationship. And the other daughter had a son named Amnon, who became the father of who? The Ammonites. Bad news. Amos chapter 2, verse 1. For thus says the Lord, for three, for the, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. I will send fire upon Moab, and it will consume the citadel of Kiriath, and Moab will die 
amid tumult, says the Lord. In other words, Moab's going to be destroyed. Moab's going down. And if you want to go back even further, you can go to the writings of Moses in Deuteronomy 23 and verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite, remember the two daughters, lots of kids, neither one of those or any of the descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. Now, I... I read some scholars this past week who said that Ruth was the 11th generation. And you know, when you look at that, there's really no way to prove that. Impossible. There's not enough information to really draw that conclusion. Others say the phrase 10th is just a general term, a generic term for ever and ever and ever. They're not allowed in the assembly. And you say, well, then how do you explain Ruth? if they're never allowed in. Well, God always has an exception to the rule if you put your faith and trust in Him. Amen? Well, where do I get a clue about that? Isaiah 56, verse 6, speaking, foreshadowing this Messiah that's coming. The foreigners. What is a Moabite? A foreigner. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. There, that's the foreigner, that's the Moabite, that's anybody. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for how many people? All people. Not just some people. And so what do I learn from this verse? I don't care how cursed you think you are. I don't care how cursed you think your tribe or your family is. You're only cursed until you come to the Lord. Amen? Everybody can be saved. Nobody is excluded from the kingdom of God if you choose God. That's the point. Now, back to, well, before we go to this next verse, look at Ruth chapter 1 and verse 6. Let me skip on down a few verses. How do we know that Ruth, this Moabite, who had this rocky start, became a believer. Her mother-in-law wants her to stay in Moab, but she's learned about the God of Israel from this beautiful woman, mother-in-law named Naomi. And she saw in Naomi's life the way she cared for her family, the way that she loved her God. That was passed down to Ruth, that Ruth didn't want to leave her. And here's what the text says, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay, and your people will be my people, and your God, who's God? My God. She's a believer. The curse has been broken. I love this book. Insightful truths. And so... We got this guy named Elimelech. He's married to Naomi. I think he gets off target. He names his kids Canaanite names. And they move to Moab because God is disciplining Israel to get them back on target. 
But he's not going to put up with that. He's going to go to Moab. He's going to do his own thing in his own way. And look what happens in verse 3. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was, it doesn't tell us how. You've you got to kind of read between the lines. I'm kind of thinking this guy is kind of doing his own thing, and it doesn't work out for him. They're in Moab, and, and they did live in Jerusalem. They had some land. They had some property there. And, 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 and then the famine hit Moab eventually. And they had to sell their property back home to try to make ends meet, but ends don't meet. And he now dies. On top of that, he's got a couple of sons. Gentile names, Canaanite names, but they also die. They got married. One got married to a Moabite woman named Orpah. Oh, by the way, just a little tidbit of information on this side. Did you know that Oprah Winfrey was supposed to be named Orpah? But her mother misspelled it on the birth certificate, so she came out Oprah. Orpah means stubborn. I think Oprah means rich. I'm not sure. (laughs) But there's this other Moabite woman named Ruth. Another little tidbit of information. My mother-in-law's name is Ruth. Okay? Just for your information. So, after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kelon also die. Dad's dead. Kids are dead. We got three widow ladies here. And Naomi was left without her two sons and husband. No land, no money, no hope, no future. Women didn't have any rights back in the ancient days. And, man, without a husband, you're left to, you know, no. it's just, it's just a bad, bad, bad situation. Verse 6. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, that's the Israelites, by providing them food. What's that tell you? The famine is over. What does that also tell you? Israel repented. Because whenever Israel repents, what does God do? He restores them. So, you saw the map earlier. They're still in Moab, but Israel, Jerusalem, now has food. Word of that makes it to Naomi. And she decides... Ah, I'm going home. I'm getting out of this wretched place. But who wants to go with her? Her daughter-in-laws. Mm, Naomi must have been a wonderful, wonderful mother-in-law to have this kind of impact on these young women, to want to go with her to a foreign country. And so Naomi and the daughter-in-law prepare to return home. And as they get to the road, Naomi really starts thinking about this. And she's thinking in verse 11, she says, My daughters, return home. This is not a good idea. You guys are Moabites, number one. And you're going to live with Israelites. They remember the 18 times you came against them. And so what, you don't have any rights You can be beaten, you can be raped, you can be killed, you can be abused. It would not be a good thing. And you have no rights there, so some bad stuff could really happen to you. And besides, why would you want to come with me? They had this thing called a Liverite law. If you want to carry on the family name, you can marry one of the other brothers. The daughter-in-law can marry a brother-in-law and carry on the family name. But Naomi's old, she's beyond childbearing years. Naomi's not going to get married. No one's going to marry her. 
She can't have kids, and in the ancient world, you got married, really, for prosperity. You, you married to reproduce children who could work in your fields. That was it. It wasn't about sex. It wasn't about anything. It was about carrying on the family name. You know, about prosperity, getting rich. And we'd say, oh, what kind of a culture would care about how much money you make and how prosperous you were and what city you lived in, what house you lived in, and, and what kind of car you drive and what kind of jeans you wear that have the nice little tag on the back. What a superficial society they lived in. But we would not be like that, right? Not us. And so, and then she says, and besides, go home. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I got married today and had a child tonight, conceived tonight, are you going to wait for that child to grow up and marry him and carry on the family? Not going to happen. You know, you're young, you're beautiful, just stay here. Orpah decides to leave and start a television career. (laughs) Ruth, I think, says, you know what, if I stay here, my faith is just not strong enough to stick with the Lord. And although it would be better for me here, I'm going with you, even if it means I die. Because I want my God. I'm just not strong enough to stick with Elohim, Jehovah God, in Moab. And so I would rather die in a place with the hope of a better future. Does that remind you of anybody? Jesus left his home in heaven to come to a place that would be worse, where he would be abused and eventually killed with the hope of an ultimate better future. You see any analogies in this book? They're all through it if you look for it. It's a wonderful book. Historians for years says, what is the book of Ruth doing in here? There's a lot of reasons why it's in here. Every curse can be broken. Everybody can be saved. And so she tries to talk him out of it. She says, I'm trying to give you the picture of how bad this would be for them. Imagine, who's a Dodger fan in here? Anybody Dodger fans? Okay. You ever sat in the cheap seats out in the bleachers and you know, you know what I'm talking about? You know the crowd that hangs out out there, right? Okay. It's the last game of the World Series and we're playing against New York. And this one's going to decide it. And you got all your Dodgers fans out there and in comes a dude to sit down next to you wearing a New York hat. Bad news. And a Moabite coming to sit next to an Israelite. Bad news. But she says, where you go, I go. Where you die, I die. See, Naomi's going home to die. She knows there's no hope for her. At least there's some hope for these younger women if they stay back here. He says, no, your God's going to be my God. She is a true believer, a true convert. I love Ruth. And it was because of the godly influence of Naomi, this wonderful, beautiful mother-in-law, who taught her about our Heavenly Father, that she decides to take her own life in her own hands and go. And so Naomi's going home to die because she has no husband, she has no sons, she's too old to work. She's got but one hope. The one hope is a kinsman redeemer. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. We'll get to that in a moment. Ruth chapter 1, verse 13, C. It is more bitter for me than for you. He's talking to the girls again. 
Because the Lord's hand has gone out against who? Me. Naomi's saying, you know what? God's no longer, her, his hand of blessing's not on me anymore. Maybe there was a time, but not anymore. As a matter of fact, when, when Ruth and Naomi make it back to Bethlehem, the, the, the women of the town says, could this be Naomi? And Naomi overhears that and says, don't you dare call me that anymore. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mira. You know what Mira means? Bitter. My name is now bitter. Now, how do you go from chapter 1, verse 13c? I'm going to take you all the way to the last verse, the end of the book. The last scene of the book ends this way. And we'll talk about it again once we get to the end. But let's read it real quickly here. Next one. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord. Remember, she's just been, she's calling herself bitter. How do you go from bitter to this? Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. How does that happen? Only God, right? Only God can take you from bitter to Naomi has a son. The key verse is this, verse 14. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a what? Kinsman redeemer. What is this kinsman redeemer thing? That's kind of new terminology to most of us. The word redeemer is the Hebrew word goel. Goel. It means to redeem, to purchase back again. Christ is called our what? Redeemer. He purchases us back from what? Satan. Because who owns us right now if we're sinners? Satan does. He buys us back. And what was the price he paid? A cross to redeem us with his own blood. Now, the Old Testament, through the law of Moses, God set up a system to keep families together. And you remember I told you they, there was a famine in the land. They moved to Moab and had to sell the land to make ends meet. But ends did not meet, and so they're broke. A kinsman redeemer could keep the family name alive by purchasing the land back for you. Now, if you were young, you could wait to the year of Jubilee because every 50 years, you know what God did? He set a reset in order. And all the land that you sold off, maybe your parents mismanaged it, but they, you know, God says, oh, I'm going to keep families together and keep it in the family. You got your land back. Pretty cool, huh? Every It's called the year of Jubilee. But if you didn't want to wait 50 years, you didn't time, Naomi doesn't have time for this. A kinsman redeemer, if he chose to do so, he didn't have to, but if he chose to do so, could pay that land off for you. Sometimes if things get really bad, in the Bible, most of the slavery was not like the slavery that, uh, well, we talked about Newton today, was not that kind of slavery. It was, um, you became a uh, servitude. You could sell yourself into slavery. Let's say you, you're so financially broke, and you go, the only way I'm going to make this is I say, I'll become, I will sell myself to you. 
And, 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 and now there's certain laws that the law of Moses required how you treat a slave. You know, you've got to give them food, clothing, shelter. And so rather than die, you sell yourself into slavery. A kinsman redeemer could redeem you, not only your property, but redeem you from sa- slavery. Do you see where we're going with this? Those of you that read this book this past week, you understand, well, this guy's name is Boaz. Love Boaz. Good guy. Chapter 1, verse 22, so namely returned to, from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess. See, they keep calling her the Moabitess. Why is that? God is trying to get Israel to see everybody's welcome in the kingdom. <laughs> now, they didn't see it. They were supposed to be missionaries to the Moabites and to people like us, the Gentiles. Not doing a very good job. They thought they were going to gobble God up all for themselves and not share their God with anybody else. And God is trying to break down those barriers. If he can use a Moabite, he can use anybody. Amen? Remember that rough, rocky start the Moabites got into? And so they return home, arriving in Bethlehem, as the barley harvest was beginning. You know, it just so happened that they arrived back when there's plenty of food available. Wasn't that lucky? Can anyone spell luck G-O-D? Do you see God's hand here? Let's keep going. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of what? Elimelech, a man of standing, whose name was Boaz. This guy had some money. This guy had some dough. This guy had some property. This guy just happened to have a field with food. Wasn't that lucky? And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, I know you're too old, but let me go to the field and pick the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. I mean, we got to eat, right? Naomi's too old to go, and so Naomi says, Okay, go ahead, my daughter. And then 3a says, So she went and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. What is gleaning? The law of Moses, God made provision for the poor. If you were in business for yourself and you lived under the law of Moses, it wasn't about the bottom line. Oh yes, God wants you to make a profit. God wants you to prosper. But he also wants the poor taken care of. And so let's say you had a field and you planted your field and it was harvest time. You were to command your reapers, as they went along with the sickle cutting the the stalks down, leave the corners. Don't touch the corners of the field. Why? That was for the poor. So 10% of your harvest went to who? The poor. They were taking care of. That was God's way of taking care of poor people. And the gleaning, if someone comes to glean behind the harvesters, Leave them alone. Let them glean. What does that mean? So here I am, a gleaner. I'm chopping with my sickle. And as I'm gathering up these stalks, some of the the stalks fall to the ground. Those are the gleanings. Leave them, he says. Don't tell your men to pick them up. Leave them for the poor to come behind. So you could go along and literally, you know, have a meal for the day at least, even if you were the poorest of the poor. That's Naomi. That's Ruth. Now watch this. Chapter 2, 3b, as it turned out, again, very, very lucky, right? She found herself working 
in a field belonging to Boaz, hero of the book, the relative of Elimelech. Ah, love God. Do you see God's hand in this book already? Do you see God's leadership? Do you see... Do you, do you believe that God can lead, guide, and direct your life like he led, guided, and directed the life of Ruth? Do you believe that? I hope you do. In the Old Testament, there's a story. It's in the Kings. Um, wicked King Ahab. God's had it up to here with Ahab. He says, Ahab's got to die. He's got to go. He's just a bad, bad influence on my people. And so he had a, another king make war against the Israelites. And uh, King Ahab decides, I'm going to go into battle, but I'm going to look like just any other soldier. And he puts all this armor on, and he doesn't go in looking like the king because he didn't want anyone to recognize him as king and take him out, right? You you take out the leader, you take out everybody. And so he disguises himself. And he's got on all this body armor. And he's riding around in his chariot. And so you can just imagine him kind of tooling around, kind of staying on the outskirts of the battle, trying to avoid getting killed. And the Bible says that an archer just sort of reaches back and at random shoots an arrow. Just at random. And the one place it needed to hit King Ahab was this little hollow spot in the armor. And as he's traveling his chariot, just a random shot, not aiming at anything, God guided that arrow where? The exact spot it needed to hit takes him out. Now, if God can guide an arrow, if God can guide a stupid arrow, do you think he can guide your life? Of course he can. That's the point. God is guiding. He is leading. He is directing. It just so happened that it was harvest time, plenty of food. It just so happened that Ruth chose Boaz's field. And it just so happened that Boaz has his eye on Ruth. Hey, tells the workers. I'm not getting the whole story here, but, oh, man, our time is really going. Hey, who's the new girl? Well, she's Ruth, the Moabitess. And he does some inquiring and he realizes what a great gal she is, sticking with her mother-in-law like that when she didn't have to. He sees some qualities and some characteristics in her that are just godly and beautiful, and she's just as beautiful On the outside, as she is on the inside, I think he's got a thing. I think he's got his eye on her, because watch what he says. Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. It will be good for you, my daughter, because in someone else's field, you might be what? Harmed. Isn't that what Naomi was saying? Stay here. Don't go to Moabites. Don't go to Israel. You will be what? Harmed. And then Boaz instructs his own men. Don't mess with this one. Don't you harm her. As a matter of fact, he says, you don't have to glean anymore. You just go right up there with my men. Take whatever you want. And whenever they stop and take a drink, she gets special favors. You can drink from the same water my men drink from. And he gave the men order, don't touch her. He would have to, you see. I think Boaz has a thing for her, don't you? Is it possible for a guy to have a thing for a girl? I'm living testimony that that is possible. I was 16 years old on the varsity football team. It was a big pep rally uh, that afternoon. We had a big game that night, and, and we were all, yeah, everyone gathered after uh, the assembly, and, 
And uh, the cheerleaders were over here, and the song leaders were over here. Now, what's a song leader? Kind of like cheer. I don't even know if they have this anymore. But it's more a dancing routine. The band would play a song, and they're doing the pom-pom thing and doing all these little dances out there. And, you know, yeah, yay for the, the home team. Picture me up there. We all got our jerseys on. You know, football game day, we all wore our football jerseys. And I'm up there with all the team, and I'm looking down at all these pretty girls. And, and I say, hey, if you could take a, one of those girls down there out for a date, I remember saying this to the guys. I said, which one would you take? And one said, well, I'd take that tall blonde over there. Another one said, I'd take that one over there. I said, not me. I'd take that little brunette down there. I didn't even know her name. Come to find out her name was Jane Zapiti. Today it's Jane Rokas. A guy can have a thing for a girl. I'm telling you, all right? And I think Boaz has a thing, but the problem is Boaz is much older than Ruth, and it would not be proper in that culture for an older man to solicit a younger woman. If this liverite law thing is going to take place, if this family is going to be saved, Ruth is going to have to initiate it because it just doesn't work that way. You've got to understand the culture. You've got to understand the way things are, they were in that day of time. And so Naomi sort of plays matchmaker, matchmaker. You ever watch The Fiddler on the Roof? Okay, she becomes the, the matchmaker woman, okay? Chapter 3, verse 1. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I try to find a home for you? In other words, you want to get married? Uh, you know, do you want to be provided for? Is not Boaz a kinsman of ours? Tonight, he's going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself. Get on your best clothes. Get yourself all bathed and perfumed and dolled up. I mean, come on. You're a good-looking woman. Get out there. Do your stuff. So then go to the threshing floor. And and don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. The best way to get to a man's heart is what? Through his stomach, all right? Let's get him well-fed. You know, let's get, you know, and now, now he's in bed, it's about midnight, and guess who shows up? Ruth. And what I want you to do is uncover his feet and then lay your head on his feet. And he'll know what that's all about. If you were raised in Moab, you wouldn't know what that's all about. But if you were raised in Israel, you would understand. Remember I told you early on that the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us? And so you kind of got to go back to that day and time and understand in the ancient Near East world, or Middle East, I guess you would say, I guess it's Near East, since Boaz was older by a generation, he would not ask her. That was not just not done. She would have to make the overture to him. And this was a way that a woman could very gracefully initiate a proposal to a man with no breach of her moral character. Do you get that? Verse 9. In the middle of the night, the man was startled. You would be too. Someone lift your cover up, right? Bent forward, and behold, a woman was there lying at his feet. He said, who are you? She said, Ruth, your maid. So please, sir, spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. What was she saying? She was saying, Boaz, marry me. It was a proposal. Oh, I love, I love Boaz. Because you see, Boaz didn't have to marry her. I think he had a thing for her, but he didn't have to marry her. 
Because in marrying her, you know what it also meant? He would have to take on all of her debt. And then she would be inheriting all of his what? Wealth. A kinsman redeemer was by no means obligated to step up and be a goel. Didn't have to do it unless they wanted to. He wanted to. Verse 11, I will do everything you ask. Now, fast forward to the end of the book. Our time's gone. There's a bunch of stuff in between, but let's get to the good stuff. What you also need to understand in Hebrew literature, when it becomes obscure, which this next passage we're about to read becomes, you are to look for a higher meaning. Randy Frazee would say, you're to look for an upper story here. All right, That's kind of what you're going to see. Now, now bear with me here. Let's look at this together. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Yay! Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Hurrah! See, the seed line carries down through the name of the son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Now it starts to get a little bit obscure. Who's the kinsman redeemer? Boaz, we can all agree on that, right? Who has given you a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He, Boaz? What's the big deal about becoming a kinsman redeemer? That that happened all the time. You don't get famous for becoming a kinsman redeemer. Who's this he? May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Is that really Boaz? For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. The Seven is just the perfect number. What, what, what they're saying is, uh, may you be blessed with the perfect family. That's just a metaphor that they're using there, okay? And so, uh, seven sons has given him birth. Who's the him? We're getting to it. The, see, Boaz wasn't born. She didn't. Ruth did not give birth to Boaz, the him. Get, are you getting this? It's, it's kind of getting a little bit jumbled. It's kind of getting a little bit obscure. And Hebrew literature does this intentionally on purpose for you to see a higher meaning. Then Naomi took the child and laid him, the child, in her lap and cared for him. And don't you know Naomi was just one of the best grandmas you've ever met. Then the woman, the, the woman living there said, Naomi has a son. Now that's really obscure. Does Naomi have a son? No. Who gave birth? Ruth has a son. But it says Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. This is important. Because Obed has a son. And they name him Jesse. And Jesse has a son. And they name him David. Who kills a lion and a bear and a giant, and becomes king of what? All of Israel. Who was David's grandma? Do you see this? See how this goes back? And if you trace David's lineage from the tribe of Judah, David 
was born where? In Bethlehem of Judea. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem of Judea. Are you seeing the big picture here? Are you seeing this kinsman redeemer here on earth and a kinsman redeemer that's coming from heaven to redeem and restore people? The upper story of salvation is coming. The lower story of salvation is for all. And so just as Boaz, the bridegroom, marries Ruth, the bride... Oh, and by the way, so you got the bride and the groom. Did you know that one of the terms for the church in the New Testament is the bride of Christ? Did you know that? And so the groom's on the way. You see the analogy here? The groom's on the way to receive his bride. The question this morning is, are you in his church? The Bible says, for as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put him on. That's how you get into his church. You put on Christ. Are you in Christ? And so, we'll wrap it up with this. Just as Boaz married Ruth and took away all of her debt, and she inherited all of his wealth, our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, one day when he comes back for his bride, his church has taken away all of our debt, and guess what we get in the kingdom, folks? All of his wealth. Amen? Can anybody say amen to that? What a great God we have. What a great God we serve. So this morning, are you in his church? It's real simple. Faith, repentance, and baptism. That's the invitation. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for being our kinsman redeemer. Thank you, Jesus, as we took of these elements this morning around your table. Your body took away all of our sins. We, re, we were redeemed by the blood on the cross. Thank you, Father, for showing us the gospel in the book of Ruth. And if there's those here today that don't yet know you as their Lord and Savior, may they come to know you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.